Well, good morning, High Point. Good to see you this morning. So glad for those of you who've joined us here in person and those who are joining us online. Thank you for, for being here with us. This morning, we're going to continue in week two of our series about the end times. In this series, we are looking at what the Bible has to say about the rapture of the church, which could literally happen at any moment, as well as Jesus' second coming. Last week, we got into Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, and the words that were spoken by Jesus covered the things that would happen from his day up until our current and present time. And that's when his disciples asked him, Jesus, when, what will be the signs of the last times? And, and he answered them by saying that there would be wars and rumors of wars, there would be famine, there would be pestilence, there would be earthquakes, there would be those who say that they are Christ, and there'll be many others who will lead people astray with great deception. And Jesus said, as we get closer to those last days, these kinds of things are going to increase. And he used the example of birth pains to make his point. When a mother is giving birth, it begins with contractions that are infrequent and somewhat mild. It's the early signs that the baby is coming, but as the baby gets closer to birth, those contractions get increasingly painful and much more frequent. Well, Jesus said that's the way it's going to be in the last days. All these things that he warns us about will happen more frequently and will happen with greater intensity, and all these signs will be signs for us to know that his return is near. Jesus tells us, I am returning, and therefore he wants to make sure that we are all ready for that moment of time. Today we're going to move on to Mark chapter 13, verses 14, and we are now entering into a time of what the theologians call the Great Tribulation. What is the Tribulation? It is the seven-year period that immediately precedes the second coming of Christ to this earth, where he will rule and reign for a thousand years. And this seven-year period of time is described to us in Matthew 24, Luke chapter 21, Mark 13, and of course you'll find it in the book of Revelation. And it will be a time that is filled with cataclysm that's hard for us to even wrap our, our brains around. So when we come to verse 14, we are in the middle of that seven-year period in what's called the abomination of desolation. It's a time when the Antichrist takes his seat in the temple and he displays himself as being God. He exalts himself above the one true God to be worshiped, and we will look at that in greater detail later on in the series. But what I really want to do this morning is to kind of fill in the blanks of the period of time between the beginning of the tribulation and this event called the abomination of desolation. And though it's not written in Mark's gospel, you will find it, you will find details regarding it in other parts of the Bible. Because no explanation of the end times would be complete without first looking at what is referred to by theologians as the rapture or the taking away of the church. You'll notice in my introduction, I said this about the series. It was a study on the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. Please understand, these are two separate events that many people confuse as one singular event. The rapture is when we will meet the Lord in the air and he will take us home. 
His second coming is when Jesus physically returns to the earth to defeat the Antichrist, destroy evil, to establish his, his millennial kingdom, among many other things. The rapture that we will discuss today is the next thing that will happen on God's prophetic calendar. And there are no signs that need to be fulfilled in order for this to happen. So it literally could happen at any time. So what is the rapture? The rapture is the moment when the Bible says that in the twinkling of an eye, the time it takes for light to reflect off of your pupil, instantly at that moment, every person on the face of the earth who is in Christ Jesus, who has been born again, uh, your sin has been washed away by the blood of Jesus, you will instantly be removed from this earth. You'll be gone. And at the same time, every one who was a believer in Christ and who have preceded us in death and are buried, well, their physical bodies will, and whose physical bodies uh, that remain, they will likewise be gone. And this rapture of the church will usher in even greater cataclysm upon the earth and its inhabitants. I mean, think about it. What will it be like the day that in a moment, in in a twinkling of an eye, every believer in Christ is gone from the face of the earth. Matthew 24, 40 says it like this. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. In their very famous book series titled Left Behind, authors Jerry Jenkins and the late Tim LaHaye write their perceptions of what that moment might be like. And I want to share it with you because I believe that it will help you to better grasp the kind of chaos that that moment is going to bring. This is just fictional writing by two authors, but I think it's, it's important for you to hear. They wrote, even the newscasters' voices were terror-filled as much as they tried to mask it. Every conceivable explanation was proffered. Thousands were dead in plane crashes and car pileups. Emergency crews were trying to clear the expressways and runways all the while grieving over loved ones and co-workers who had disappeared. Cars driven by people who spontaneously disappeared had careened out of control. The toughest chore for emergency personnel was to determine who had disappeared, who was killed, who was injured, and then to communicate that with the survivors. Local television stations from around the world reported bizarre occurrences, especially in time zones where the event had happened during the day or early evening. CNN showed via satellite the video of a groom disappearing while slipping the ring onto his bride's finger. A funeral home in Australia reported that nearly every mourner disappeared from one memorial service, including the corpse, while at another service at the same time only a few disappeared and the corpse remained. Morgues also reported corpse disappearances. At a burial, three of six pallbearers stumbled and dropped a casket when the other three disappeared. When when they picked up the casket, it too was empty. At a Christian high school soccer game, most of the spectators and all but one of the players disappeared in the middle of play, leaving their shoes and uniforms on the ground. Now that's creative writing by two men who wrote a fictional series on the events that we're studying, and yet I believe that what they're describing here is spot on, and it helps us to visualize what that moment might be like. That moment when in an instant, all the Christians of the world are suddenly gone. 
And please understand that this is an event that will occur because Jesus talked about it and the Bible repeatedly documents it. Luke 12, 40. You also must be ready because the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will come at an hour when you do not expect him. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he tells his disciples this in John 14, 1 through 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. He's coming back, ladies and gentlemen, and he's going to take us to be with him for eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, the Apostle Paul says this, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. That last trumpet will be the last one that calls all believers to assembly. And he continues, for when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. We will be transformed. What does that mean? At that last trumpet sound, in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be changed with a heavenly body in which we will enjoy eternity in forever. So, and it ain't going to be anything like the pains and aches that we have now. We'll get into that at another time. At the last, it's a heavenly body. It's going to be something incredible. But at that last trumpet sound, this is what's going to happen. So with all of that in mind, let's take a look at some incredibly exciting scripture that for the believer is essential not for us to just read, but it's essential for us to know. It's located in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You can go ahead and turn there. And... Uh, because we're going to spend a lot of time there. Actually, we're going to be all over the place with Scripture today, but we're going to spend most of our time in 1 Thessalonians 4, so you might want to turn there and stay there. Every Scripture I'm going to read will be up on the screen behind me, so you'll still be able to follow along. Now, if you'll recall, in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul goes to the city of Thessalonica, where it says that he has two weeks to do some preaching and teaching. And so Paul has that window of time to do his work, and the question becomes, what do you teach these people in a two-week span of time? If he is teaching new believers, then I would suggest to you that one of the essentials must be teaching about the rapture of the church. Having said that, what I find interesting in our world today is that many evangelical churches rarely talk about this subject. Perhaps some of you have never even heard about this before. That's okay. But it's exciting stuff that you need to know that you need to be aware of. So Paul is teaching on this, and he makes it sound so glorious. He makes it sound uh, so compelling, such a, an exciting thing for them to realize that in the months and in the years that follow, as people died, the folks in Thessalonica begin to think that maybe somehow they missed it. <laughs> and so Paul writes to them in first and 2 Corinthians in order to kind of clarify things because people are asking questions about what happens when people die. This is a very common question that 
I am often asked whenever I am involved in a funeral or a memorial service because family members of, of the deceased and their friends want to know what happens when you die. And it is always a great privilege whenever I'm given the opportunity to tell them where a believer goes and what they experience. So Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, and get these words, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. We have this hope as Christians, ladies and gentlemen. If you lose someone who is a believer, you have not lost them because they are not dead. They are alive. But sadly, when you lose someone to death and they're not a Christian, you're never going to see them again. That is a sad reality. So you haven't lost your loved ones who have received salvation because they're not dead they are still alive. And you may say, but Pastor David, I saw them die in the hospital. I saw them in the funeral home. They're in this box right down in front of your podium. Believe me, they're dead. No, they're not. They're asleep. He uses the word sleep and not dead because in a sense, Christians don't die. And here's a fact that is true about all human beings. There is never a moment when our soul or our spirit is unconscious. The word, that, the word sleep here used in the Greek is where we get our word cemetery, if you can believe that. And when you think about a cemetery in that light, it becomes now more like a resort where people are asleep because our spirit never dies. You know, when I arrived here eight years ago, I didn't have a lot of experience in doing funerals and memorial services because as an associate pastor, you're not asked to do that very often. They always seem to go to the senior pastor to do that. And the truth is, I really didn't enjoy doing funerals. It was one of the things that I, I least enjoyed doing in terms of my responsibilities as a pastor. But one day I sat down and I had a conversation with my pastor and, I sh and, and he shared with me some very interesting insight that has completely changed me and my thinking about this whole subject. He shared how there is no more fertile soil than the hearts of people who are sitting in a church during a memorial service or doing a funeral, during a funeral. People at that moment are ready to hear the truth of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus because at that moment... Everyone in that building is thinking about their own mortality. And what he shared with me there has completely had changed my thinking. Now, if you can say I love, I don't want to say I love them, I enjoy doing funerals because it's about as real as anything you'll ever do. It's about life and death. Now, since coming to Red Bluff, I have done more funeral and memorial services than I care to count. I say that because sadly, each one represents a person that I knew and who I loved, but is no longer with us. But please understand, as believers in Christ, the sadness is always eclipsed with great joy. And that joy occurs when you come to the realization that though they may have died, they are, as the scriptures say, asleep. And we will be re reunited with them again, either when we ourselves die or when we are raptured to heaven. Therefore, we have this hope at a funeral of a believer. 
we have this knowledge of knowing that it isn't the end of the road, that we will see them again, praise God, because the body sleeps, but the spirit lives. We see this very closely, or very clearly, excuse me, in the story of Lazarus, Jesus' good friend. Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, send a messenger to Jesus who's out doing ministry. He's a long ways away. They say, you need to come home, Jesus. You need to heal him, or surely Lazarus is going to die. Well, if you know the rest of the story, Jesus doesn't go. He continues to minister, and Lazarus dies. But I want, you to, I want to read to you how Jesus responded to his disciples when he hears this news. It's found in John 11, verses 11 through 14. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. There's that term again. But I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So Lazarus' body was asleep while his spirit was alive and waiting to be awakened by the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 5, 16, Paul is talking about the resurrected Christ, and he says this. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Here's another example. Acts 75 excuse me, Acts 7, verse 59 and 60. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What happened is his spirit went home to be with the Lord while his body no longer had function. It fell asleep. So from a human standpoint, we look at death as being dead, but from a Christian and from a scriptural standpoint, we see death as people merely being asleep. So what happens when a Christian passes away? Well, let's look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. What Paul is saying, that as a Christian, to be absent from the body, to have died, is to be immediately in the presence of God. At home with the Lord is what happens the minute that your spirit leaves your body. Your body is no longer functioning, you are asleep, but your spirit is with the Lord instantly. In Philippians 1, 23 and 24, Paul is in prison. He is facing possible execution. So he is torn when he writes this. He says, I am pulled in two directions. I want very much to leave this life and be with Christ, which is, which is a far better thing because you see, if Paul's life is taken, he's going to be in a much better place. He's going to be with Christ. But he continues in verse 24, but for your sake, it is much more important that I remain alive. And let me just emphasize again that your soul never sleeps. 
It is always conscious. So in heaven, it will be aware of the goodness, the glory, the grace, and the majesty of God Almighty. It's in God's presence. It's beholding God. Though it is a spirit, it is recognizable. It is identifiable. If you will recall, in the Old Testament, Moses has died. His body is asleep. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the disciples saw him, they immediately knew who he was. He was instantly recognizable with some kind of a heavenly identifiable form. And yet, having said all this about the spirit and soul, understand that the body is still necessary. One of the reasons that we treat a body with dignity is because God has use for that body in eternity. Also remember, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and these bodies will be resurrected. That is why there are warnings in the Scripture about whom or who you join your body with because it has value. It has eternal significance. So the body will one day be resurrected while the soul never, ever sleeps. Now that's awesome news for those of us who know Christ Jesus. But for those of us who don't, it brings great fear because likewise their soul never sleeps either. So for an unbeliever who dies, they are immediately, they are instantly and consciously aware of the terror, of the pain, and of the torment of hell. Initially, hell will be the consciousness of total darkness and separation from God's presence and all the torment that comes along with that, but it will end after that judgment day with being cast into the lake of fire for eternity where the Bible says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal torment, while conversely, heaven will be the total consciousness of God and his glorious presence forever. So let's look a little bit deeper at the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As I've been looking at all of this, it has helped me to come to understand my desire to truly live a life of holiness. What I mean is since we know that the rapture could happen at any moment, I want to be sure that I am doing the right thing when that time comes. Nothing could be worse for a believer in Christ than when that trumpet blasts for one of us to be involved in some kind of a sinful activity at that exact moment. And so therefore that makes me want to walk in holiness, to walk in proximity, with the Lord, I want to be ready when that moment comes. Because as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that he will come in the night. It means that when he comes, he will come like a thief in the night. He comes unannounced. He comes quietly, he comes secretly, but he comes suddenly. And no one knows that time or day except God the Father. But the point is that, that Jesus is coming again. And I don't know about you, but as for me, I am personally looking forward to that day. 
So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 4.14. Be reading from the English Standard Version. It starts out by saying, For since we believe that Jesus died, before you can believe in the rapture, before you can experience the rapture, you must understand a few things. The very foundation of this event occurring, the reason believers will be removed from this earth is first because Jesus died. And this isn't simply knowing that there was a moment in history when Christ died, but it's also understanding the purpose behind Jesus' death. And Paul writes about this. He's explaining the reason that Christ died. He's looking at the purposes of Christ's death and his resurrection three days later. How that on the cross, through what Jesus accomplished, we have forgiveness of sin. We have become, as the scriptures say, a new creation. Let's go back to that verse again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. You know, the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. But because of Jesus' death on the cross, he washes our sin away. When we put our trust in him, instantly we have accepted his saving work on the cross. And instantly we are moved from death into life. Instantly, we no longer need to fear death. We don't have to worry about death, but we are ready for the coming of the Lord. Therefore, with our sins being washed away, we need not face death any longer. We become instantly redeemed and we pass from death into life. He died so that we might live. And for those believers who have died, when the rapture occurs, as the scripture says, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. They're spirits that have already gone to be in his presence. This is the foundation of the rapture, ladies and gentlemen. So not only do you believe in Jesus, but you must also believe that he rose from the grave. Paul is making a very, very clear statement here for us today on the importance of believing in the resurrection because what happened to Jesus is going to happen to us. If he didn't rise, we're not going to rise. But because he rose, we also are going to rise. John 14, 19, second half of that verse, Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. 1 Corinthians 6.14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. So if God raised Jesus from the dead, he's also going to raise us. 2 Corinthians 4.14, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus. So again, I can't stress this enough. When you put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you believe that on the cross of Calvary he bore your sin, and he not just only bore your sin, but he bore the punishment for that sin, God raised him up. You are now in Christ Jesus. You identify with Christ. He forgave your sin. You now have his righteousness, and his resurrection becomes your future resurrection. First Thessalonians 4.15, Paul
Paul says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. What Paul is stating here is that this is something that Jesus revealed to him. It's an essential truth that Jesus passed along to the Apostle Paul so that he would in turn teach every one of us to know this truth. So the very foundation of the rapture is not just the work of Christ, but it is likewise the word of Christ. It is a divine revelation. Look at the second part of that verse, 1 Thessalonians 4.15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, we who are alive, who are left, until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So don't worry about those who have died in Christ Jesus and who have fallen asleep. Their spirit is with God and he is going to resurrect their bodies. And we who are alive at that moment are going to experience with them the reality of his appearing. But unlike them, we will experience the instantaneous and the miraculous transformation from mortality to immortality in the twinkling of an eye. Now that leads me to the plan or, or, or the design of the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, first half of that verse says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Not an angel, not a heavenly host, but Jesus himself will appear. Why? Because the church is his bride. He loves the church. He died and resurrected to create the church. When you see a married couple who are deeply in love, you see a picture of God's love for his bride, for his church. And just like a groom can't wait to see his bride, Jesus can't wait to come and to receive his bride. He can't wait to gather her and to greet her and to take her back to the place that he has prepared for her. Let's go back to verse 16 again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. In the Greek, those words, a cry of command, comes from the word kalusma. It has a, it has a military-esque kind of a, a meaning. Kind of like a, a drill sergeant standing up and saying, fall in, get in formation, stand in attention, stand and get ready. Because you're going to experience something the likes that you never ever imagined. And all the bodies that have been asleep in the graves will burst forth likewise and they will stand at attention. At that moment, we will all stand at attention. Not like we're going to stand there for five minutes. We're going to stand to attention within a millisecond because that's all the time this thing is going to take. Because that transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to surge through every part of your body and every fiber of your very being. And what was dead in you will be brought to life and mortality will be obliterated and it will be replaced by immortality. Oh, what a day that will be when my Jesus I will see. What a glorious day that will be. Jesus said this would happen. Look at John 5, 25. I tell you the truth. The time is coming and is now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
I love those words, the cry of command in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. Jesus did a similar thing when he stood at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And he cried out, Lazarus, come forth. I read an article somebody wrote. He said, if God hadn't specified Lazarus, if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus, every tomb would have opened up and everybody would have walked out. That's the power of the voice of God. I told the earlier service, the rapture would have happened sooner than, than God wanted if Jesus hadn't specified Lazarus' voice. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 4.16 again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel. What do those last words mean? I'm not sure exactly. And who is the archangel? Well, in the Jewish tradition, the rabbis teach that there are seven archangels, and each one of their names ends with E-L, and in Hebrew, E-L is God. So they say you have Michael and Gabriel, and you have Ariel, and others are listed in the Jewish rabbinical writings, but yet the Bible only specifies one. And the one that it talks about is Michael. And you'll find him in Daniel chapter 12. So many people speculate that this is Michael. And Michael lends his voice to Christ's voice. And whether it is an excited shout by the archangel, or whether Jesus is giving a command for Michael to follow by thundering it and echoing it through all time and through all eternity, we're not sure. But it is the cry of an archangel. And please keep in mind, all of this happens in a millisecond. All of this is going to happen sooner than you can blink your eye. By the time you actually realize what is happening, you are going to be well on your way to the pearly gates of heaven. Praise God. Now get this in verse 16 again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. What is the trumpet of God? Well, if you will recall in the Old Testament, the trumpets were used to assemble the people. It was a, it was a call to battle. It was always a call to assembly. In 1 Corinthians 15, 52, it says, For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and those who are living will also be transformed. So you've got the Lord descending with a cry of command, and you've got the archangel echoing his words. But here's another thing for you to think about. If you recall, when God spoke to Jesus in John chapter 12, the scriptures say that it sounded like thunder to those who were, who were standing by. So picture, if you will, in addition to all this, this large clap of thunder echoing across creation as the archangel is adding his voice to it. Plus, you have this loud trumpet blast going on, and all of this plays a part in splitting open every single grave of those who have died in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and the dead in Christ will rise first. Why do they go first? Who knows? Maybe it's because they got six feet further to go. I'm not sure. <laughs> but the next thing you realize is that every grave is broke open, and a resurrected body now comes forth. And you may ask, well, Pastor David, what about those who've been cremated? 
had this conversation with my daughter about, about this. What about those who've been eaten by sharks? What about those who've been blown up in an explosion or, or, or just obliterated in a plane crash? Do you really think that's going to be hard for God? I mean, think about it. Why do we even worry about that kind of thing? If he's going to resurrect our bodies, he will gather every single particle of every person that's been blown to pieces or cremated, and he will put together, and they will have their heavenly body. So the next time you're at a cemetery, I want you to start thinking about it as resurrection ground. It's nothing more than a resort for people who have died in Christ. There's going to be a lot of people who are there. But one day, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to wake them up. And that ground is going to split open. And those concrete vaults are, are, are going to break. And those caskets are going to burst forth life. And their bodies are going to rise up while their spirit is coming down with the Lord. And mid, in midair, they're going to come together and be united again. This is so cool. If you don't find this cool, there's something wrong with you. You can leave if you don't find this cool. I'm sorry because I do. Let me move on to 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Caught up comes from the Greek word harpizo. It's, the root of that word means to forcibly remove something, to forcibly pull out or take out. You are gone in an instant. You're out there in the stratosphere <laughs> on your way to heaven. And you are going to behold the Lord. You're going to actually see him in your sight. And you're going to be seeing your loved ones. And all you can think is, this is so incredibly unbelievable. I can't believe this is happening to me. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52 says, we will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye. This is the world's greatest rescue mission, ladies and gentlemen. He is taking his followers out of this corrupt world. In that moment, you are gone. In a moment, you have been rescued while Jesus is making good on his promises to you. John 14, 3, Jesus said, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. That is what is happening at that exact moment. You are being rescued by the one whose love has absolutely no limits. You are being rescued by the one who loves you more deeply than any human being ever could possibly love you. You can't even fathom the kind of love that Jesus has for you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Oh, what a day. What a glorious day that will be. Anthony, will you come forward? And I'd like to ask all of you to stand to your feet as we work our way down to the end of this service. I have tried my best this morning to give you a glimpse of what the rapture will be like based upon what the scriptures say. See, it's one thing to, I was talking to somebody in the foyer after the first service, one thing to read the scripture. We don't always understand what the scriptures say. And when you, 
when you dig deep and you get into the Greek and some of the other, and you cross-reference other scriptures, it gives you a much more vivid picture of what you might read. And I've tried my best to try to, sh to show you in modern-day terms, human terms, what this might look like. But you know, the truth is, it's one thing to have this knowledge, and it's something entirely different to have this knowledge but not be ready for when this moment comes. As I said to you earlier, this is the next thing to happen in God's prophetic calendar. And it's the biggest thing that will ever happen to any of us in our entire existence. Because at that moment, the title of Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins' book series, Left Behind, well, that becomes real. Because at that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you don't want to be left behind. You need to be ready. You must be ready to meet your Savior in the air on that glorious day. And you know, I've talked to people and I've heard people say, well, that's a nice little fairy tale, Pastor David. I don't believe that. I just, I just ask a bunch of garbage. It's a, it's a nice fiction book that somebody wrote. And then I see them latching on and believing things of so much lesser significance, actually believing such far-fetched stuff that it literally blows my mind. Why is it that we are willing to believe anything, a, a person that has a doctor in front of their name, why are, why, are we so, why are we so believing of them? If we've learned anything through this pandemic is the experts talk all over themselves. They contradict themselves constantly. And the Word of God has been around for thousands of years. It is unchanged. It is written. All the prophecies in the Bible have been fulfilled. It can't be more clear, folks. And if you doubt this morning the fact that your spirit is eternal and that it never dies, and you doubt that upon death your spirit immediately goes into God's presence if you're a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, that your spirit immediately experiences the absence of God's presence and all the horrors that go along with that, well then, my friend, you need to spend some time in the hospitals or at hospice around the bed of those who are dying. I've had the privilege of being with several Christians who have died. And though it is a sad time, it's always a peaceful time. They slip away quietly. They slip away peacefully. Sometimes they will speak words as though they're talking to another individual in the room who is coming to take them home. On the other hand, I know of others who have died while screaming and writhing with blood-curdling voices as though something evil was coming to take them. Do not tell me that this is not real. This is as real as anything I will ever tell you, and I don't care if you've listened to any sermon I've ever preached to you before, you need to believe what I've shared with you today. It is real, it is eternal, and believe me when I tell you that you don't wanna end up on the opposite side of this. So as always, it is my responsibility as a pastor, because I care about you, 
to give everyone in this place and all of those who are watching online an opportunity to receive salvation in Christ Jesus. The Bible says in order for you to be saved, you must simply believe and confess. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the only way to God the Father. He came and he walked a sinless life on this earth. He taught us the love of the Father. He died an excruciating death on the cross. The blood that he shed on that cross is what covers, it's what atones your sin. It washes you clean. He, did, he rose three days later. That same resurrection power now becomes yours. You need to confess that. You just simply do that by praying it. Whether you pray out loud, whether you pray in your mind mentally, whether you pray in the spirit, whatever it is, you pray those words. In a moment, I'm going to close this service in prayer. I don't want you to listen to my words. I've just got to close the service. I'm going to pray my heart. You need to pray your heart. Where are you with God today? Are you playing games? Or are you in a committed relationship with him? You can't miss this moment. You've got to be in Christ Jesus if you're going to experience this. And so if it is your desire to receive Christ this morning, pray a simple prayer of belief and confession. And for those of you who are already Christians, you've already received Jesus as Lord and Savior, I want to ask you, to pray that God would make what I'm sharing in this series very real to you. And it will literally drive you to approach those who you know and who you love with the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because you realize how real this is. You realize the truth between life and death, between eternity in heaven and eternity in hell, and you care enough about them to tell them about the goodness of God. This altar is open. If any of you would like to come and pray at the altar, you're free to do that. In the meantime, let's bow our heads in prayer. Precious Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that a relationship with you and this whole thing is, is easy enough for a four-year-old to understand. It is us, it is we who make it complicated. It's not complicated at all. You came, you died, you rose again. When we receive you as Lord and Savior, we go to heaven with you. What a precious gift. It's the greatest gift that we will ever receive in our entire existence. For those who are here watching online who thinks that death is the end game, Lord, arouse their spirits to understand that we are eternal beings. You created us with eternity in mind. And you not only did that, but you gave us a pathway to eternity in the presence of God. And all we need to do is to simply acknowledge that and to simply to receive the free gift that you give us. I pray that those who do not know you would have the courage to pray that kind of prayer of belief and confession to you today. And for those who already know you, Lord, that they would pray a prayer to say, Lord, make this more real to me today than it has ever been. Ignite a fire within me to want to lead those who I care about to a relationship in you. That we will not be afraid, Lord, to open our mouths and share your goodness, even if we're rejected. 
even if we are denied. Because God, in doing so, we will learn that you, in fact, give us the words to say, and we are simply being obedient to you. And something we have to remember, Lord, is that we don't win people to Christ. You can save them. We can only direct them to you. And that's what you've called us to do. So I pray that you'd make that real within each of our hearts, that we would all lead someone to, to a relationship with you, and that we can say that we snatched one out. We snatched one so that they can be a part of that greatest uh, rescue mission of all time. But Lord, I know it won't end there because we'll want to continue to do it again, and you know that as well. And that's why you've called us to do it. So would you strengthen us? Holy Spirit, would you give us the ability, the boldness, the strength to no longer be silent, but to speak forth your goodness? And Father, as we go our separate ways today, I ask that your Holy Spirit would go with us, directing us the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. Let those conversations be full of life. Let them be about building people up and not tearing them down. I pray that your love would so flow from us that people who we come into contact with would sense your love and your presence and they would start asking the kind of questions that would open those doors for us to share your goodness with them and that you would use us, Lord. Pray that your spirit will keep us alert and awake to the fact that your coming could happen at any moment and that we would be living lives of holiness up until that time. So strengthen us, Father, I pray. And I ask that between now and the next time we meet, Lord, that you would keep us safe. You would protect us from COVID. You would protect us from other sicknesses and diseases and illnesses. And that you would protect us from any accidents that might befall us. Till we come together again as a church family and worship you in spirit and in truth. Pray you'll be with my church family. Bless them. Bless them and their children and their children's children. And help us, Father, all to realize the importance of what we've heard today. And I ask these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today.